Welcome to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast that takes you freewheeling down the great internet rabbit hole of trivia. Each week we pick a starting point and then who knows where all the twists, turns and tangents will take us. But we'll be sure to unearth a treasure trove of frivolous facts that will be as fascinating as they are, well, useless. When One Thing Leads to Another is produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. Our theme music is by Justin Mitchell. This is Series 2, Episode 12, Bhutan and Beyond. I was looking at our metrics the other day. Oh, were you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our metrics are the number of people who listen to us and uh, where those good people are when they're listening. I imagine they're dotted all over the world. Well, they are. Are they? they? Yeah, yeah, I was really quite surprised. Do you know the longest reach that our humble little podcast gets to? Perhaps Australia, New Zealand. New Zealand. And uh, the furthest place in New Zealand, well, it's a bit of a toss-up between Wellington... Oh, yeah. Christchurch. Yeah. And a place called Wanganui. Wanganui. I feel like I've heard of Wanganui. Yeah. So a quick hello to our... Hello to our listeners in... All the way out there in New Zealand and particularly Wanganui. I was also looking at other geographical locations and there were a few surprises in there. Oh, yeah. I'll be perfectly honest. Uh, Unexpectedly random. Mm. For example, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Iran? Yeah. That's got to have been by accident. Well, whoever was listening, they didn't much care for it or it was by accident because we only got one listen from both of those places. So it's not like we have a a fan base in Saudi Arabia or indeed Iran. But if that person happens to be listening now, hello. And another unexpected place was Bhutan. Bhutan. I thought, well, that's pretty random. And then it occurred to me, I know precisely nothing at all about Bhutan. Yeah, I I have no idea even where Bhutan is. I'd have a guess. Go on, have a guess. I might be a little bit embarrassed. I'm going to say it's around Nepal, Tibet. You've aced it. Oh, okay. It borders Tibet to the north and India to the south. And it lies in the eastern Himalayas. Mm -hmm. And I found some interesting little nuggets Mm. about Bhutan, which I'd like to share with you now. Isn't Bhutan in the song Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick? Does he say Bhutan? From the gardens of Bhutan. Yucatan, Bhutan. One of them, isn't it? (laughs) He definitely says Yucatan. Sudan, Japan, Milan, Yucatan. No Bhutan. No Bhutan. Close but no cigar. Tell me something interesting about Bhutan. The name Bhutan means land of the thunder dragon. And it is the first country in the world with specific constitutional obligations on its people to protect the environment. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So written in the constitution is at least 60% of the land must be covered in forest. Oh, that's very good. So you can't be chopping down forest if it gets below 60%, which is good. That's very good. And its capital, mm. a place called Timpu, yeah. is one of just two capital cities in Asia mm. that does not have a single traffic light. Oh, what the hell does it have then? Well, it a has lot of car accidents. No, it has people employed. Oh, to, actual officers. Yeah, have actual officers. The yeah, yeah. The other place oh. that doesn't have traffic lights. Traffic lights is any idea? Pyongyang in uh, North, North Korea. Korea. Yeah, this may interest you. Bhutan is the only nation in the world that tobacco is completely banned. Well, good for bloody them. And here's another fact for you. At 24,840 feet, the Gangkar Puensum is the highest point in Bhutan. Mm. 
and is the highest unclimbed mountain in the world. And I thought this was very interesting, mm. that in Bhutan, television was banned right up until 1999. Wow. You got me thinking about television. Oh, yeah. So I thought I'd delve into the world of the telly. Of the tube. Yeah. yeah. And inevitably, I came across John Logie Baird. He invented the telly, didn't he? He didn't invent the television per se. A whole host of scientists before him invented all of the many different elements oh, required okay. to create a television set. Okay. The origins, in fact, go way back to the 1830s. But oh, Logie right. Baird... Okay is credited with being the first to build what was to become the first working television set. I see. He harnessed all of those previously uh, yeah. invented bits and pieces. Right, yeah. OK, yeah. Am I the only person that whenever I talk about John Logie Baird, I think of Yogi Bear? That's, what everybody that's standard. OK, good. Yeah. And this amused me. So when he got all the different elements and got them together to create the world's first working television set, yeah. um, the items that were used oh, yeah. included an old hat box okay. and a pair of scissors, <laughs> some darning needles, wow. a few bicycle light lenses, yeah. a used tea chest right. and sealing wax and glue. Wow. This was in 19... Sounds like Blue Peter. Yes, it does. And that was in 1924. And during right. his experiments, he received a 1,000 volt electric shock, Ooh. but fortunately survived with only a burnt hand. But as a result, his landlord, a Mr. Tree, <laughs> ordered him to vacate the premises. <laughs> And on the 26th of January 1926, Baird gave the first public demonstration of what is termed true television images right, okay. for members of the Royal Institution okay. and a reporter from the Times. Okay. Prior to that, Logie Baird had only managed to get images of silhouettes, so it was more like shadow puppets. Oh, I see. Okay, so this yeah. was the first sort of genuine TV... Yeah. picture as we, as we sort know of know it today. Oh, yeah. okay. Anyway, this first public demonstration of the television occurred in his laboratory at 22 Frith Street oh, yeah. in the Soho district of London, Nightwell, where yeah. the famous Bar Italia is oh, now located. Okay. And there is a blue plaque to commemorate the event. Oh, very good. Yes. I thought I'd find out more about blue plaques. Mm. Because um, you see them dotted around, don't you? You do. They were conceived by politician William Ewart, mm. I think I'm saying that right, in 1863. And the first plaque, mm -hmm. Lord Byron. Okay. The famous romantic poet. Yeah. And that was on, at uh, number 24 Hollies Street. Okay. Now that rang a bell when I read that. Yeah. And I realised that's that little side street off John Lewis Department Store off uh, Oxford Street. Oh. Yeah, so right. that's where uh, Lord Byron used to live. Right. Anyway, the house and the plaque were demolished. Right. But uh, there is uh, a plaque reinstalled saying okay. this is where old Lord Byron right. was born, in fact. Right. Yeah. And other blue plaques in London. Mm -hmm. There's two next door to each other on, I think it's Brook Street in Mayfair. One belonging to Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. And the other belonging to, of course... Handel. Handel. We've been there, haven't we? We've been there. and we, we played with inflatable guitars, didn't we? Pretending to be Jimi Hendrix while wearing sort of restoration wigs and yeah. jackets like Handel. Oh, the laughs we had. And apparently when old Jimi... Hendrix was asked about living next door to Handel's mm. old gaff. Mm. Apparently he said, quote, to tell you the God's honest truth, 
I haven't heard much of the fellas' stuff. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Good old Jimmy. Yeah. And you know how blue plaques usually commemorate politicians, actors and scientists mm -hmm. and musicians, etc. Mm -hmm. etc. So sort of fairly predictable careers, I suppose. Yeah. Um, there's one that caught my eye that commemorates the house that was lived in by, quote, the namer of the clouds. So it's a bloke called Luke Howard. And you know when you were at school and you had to learn all the names for the clouds? Oh, like the cu Cirrus, Cumulus and all that. Stratus, Nimbus. Nimb oh, you remember them well. I taught clouds, mate, for many years. OK, well, you're a bit <laughs> of a cloud expert. Well, you can go to a place in Tottenham and there's a blue plaque to commemorate Luke Howard who made all those names up for clouds. <laughs> Well, I'm going to jump back to Bar Italia. This is where uh, John Logie Baird did his demonstration, right? Exactly. The of first, the telly. Yes. First true television images. Yeah. That was it. In That happened in Bar Italia. There was this one time I was walking past and I saw Suggs off of Madness sipping a coffee at Bar Italia. How funny, because I saw Suggs off of Madness outside Garage Coffee here in Whitstable. He really likes coffee, doesn't he, he old does. Suggs? Yeah. But yeah, Bar Italia, of course, is a 24-hour cafe, isn't it? And it's been going since 1949. Right, OK. And has stayed in the same family the whole time. And apparently the coffee machine is still the original one first wow. brought in in 1949. And did you know that the legendary boxer... Rocky Marciano presented a poster-sized signed photograph of himself right. to the cafe, which yeah. adorns the wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was on the Bar Italia website and it was saying that the signed poster has only ever been removed once when the cafe was recreated in a film studio right. for the 1986 film Absolute Beginners. Oh, which okay. was set in 1950s London. Right. Directed by Julian Temple, yeah. starring Patsy Kensit. Yeah. And, and the fella. The other guy, the, that guy. Can you oh, remember his name? Oh, I can, I can picture him. Eddie O'Connell. Eddie O'Connell. Whatever happened to him? Good question. Well, I was surprised to find out Eddie O'Connell doesn't have a Wikipedia page, which isn't usually a good sign. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Career wise. But yeah. he's done a few acting bits here and there, right. including bit parts in Sexy Beast. Oh, yeah, I've seen and, that, yeah. And um, Johnny English Strikes Again, but no lead roles. OK. Absolute Beginners was a critical and commercial flop, and it has been cited as the chief reason for the collapse of the British film studio Goldcrest. Oh, right. Oh, which that. invested £4.6 million in the film, but only got £1.8 million back. Oh, dear. OK. Jeremy Allen in The Guardian described the film as an over-budget turkey of huge proportions. Oh, harsh. Yeah, what a shame. Many critics said the best thing about the film was the accompanying David Bowie song of the same name. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. I found some interesting facts about the song. Do share. If I could turn back time. Oh. He just said do share. <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah, anyway, apparently the session musicians who were hired to play on the track were told that they'd be working with an artist referred to only as Mr X. Oh, right, okay. And it was only when they rocked up to Abbey Road <sighs> Studios that they found out that Mr X was, in fact, David Bowie. Oh, wow, imagine that. The female backing singer... It's not Kate Bush. 
even though it really sounds like her. Oh, right. Oh, I it's was not. Yeah. convinced it was Kate Bush, but it's not. It's an urban myth. OK. The female backing singer is someone called Janet Armstrong. OK. Yeah. And the story goes that Bowie said to the guitarist and band leader, Kevin Armstrong, quote, I want a girl singer who sounds like a shop girl. So I told him my sister sang a bit and worked in Dorothy Perkins. He didn't even hesitate. He just went, right, get her in. And that was it. Janet rolled up to the actual session and sang it. And it was the first time Janet found herself in a professional recording studio. Brilliant. Yeah. What a great story. Yeah. I wonder, was it the last time she ever found herself in a professional recording studio? Did that launch her professional career i hear you ask did it launch janet armstrong's professional career well i did some digging right and found out that she had previously recorded a song called exploitation written by her brother kevin right. in 1980 okay presumably it wasn't recorded in a professional recording studio It was released as a seven-inch single yeah. and Smash Hits magazine reviewed it. Did they, yeah. Quote, Janet Armstrong is a 15-year-old schoolgirl from Orpington in Kent. She'll probably become a hairdresser unless you buy her excellent record. So buy it. And that was Smash Hits, 15th to the 28th of May, 1980. Brilliant. Interestingly, mm -hmm. during the recording of Absolute Beginners, the song that is, Right. Mick Jagger supposedly flew in to record Dancing in the Street with Bowie oh. using the same session musicians. Oh, right, OK. So, yes, yeah, yeah that would be about right. Yeah. You'll probably remember the song was recorded to raise funds for Live Aid. Yeah, with the it. idea that the song would be performed at Live Aid with Bowie in London and Jagger in Philadelphia. Ah. But because the satellite link-up would create a half-second delay, the idea was canned. Oh, shame. Well, Live Aid has sent me down a very windy, lengthy rabbit hole because I, like many people, was glued to the telly for pretty much the whole day and evening watching the Live Aid. And I was mesmerised by Bowie's performance. Mm. And I remember during the performance, he introduces his band. Mm. So he introduced Kevin Armstrong, who, oh. yeah, who was the, uh, the guitarist on Absolute, Absolute Beginners, Beginners, and it was his sister who sang the backing mm. on that. And then there was also, do you remember Thomas Dolby? I do. Yeah, well, he played keys oh. for Bowie at oh, uh, Live he? Age, yeah, which I thought was interesting. And I also remember during his performance, he introduced the two backing singers. Was one of them Janet Armstrong? No, alas, oh. not, no. But one was called Tessa Niles, mm. and the other one was called Helena Springs. Right. So I did a little bit of uh, Googling there, mm. and uh, Helena Springs has a lot of very interesting shears about her. Okay. One of the really surprising things I found out was mm. that she was Bob Dylan's writing partner in the late 70s. What? Yeah. Helena Springs, who sang backing vocals for Bowie at Live Aid, remains Bob Dylan's most prolific co-writing partner. And she has written a minimum of 19 songs. He's credited her with 19 songs. She claims there's another three right. that he's uncredited her with. Yeah. And so I thought, well, that's incredible. And then I was delving deeper into Helena Springs. If you'll pardon the expression. She is the backing female singer on the Pet Shop Boys' West End Girls. 
So she was. She's a quite the prolific backing singer as well. She is, and she's in fact worked with other big artists, Elton John, Mick Jagger, Spandau Ballet. Yeah. So it seems that she is a proper top-notch mm. go-to backing singer, mm. um, and she also released a couple of albums in her own right in the, in the mid '80s. And what is more. Not only was she co-writing with Bob Dylan, mm. she had a bit of a relationship with him, right. no less. Mm. And allegedly, his song called New Pony is inspired by her. Right. Although I was then reading the lyrics, I thought I'm not sure what she'd think about it, because the lyrics are, I had a pony, her name was Lucifer. She broke her leg and needed shooting. Oh dear. And the fascinating facts about Helena Springs just continues on and on. Okay. She also was in a relationship with a certain Robert De Niro. Okay. Um, and this was at the time he was filming Raging Bull. Oh, wow. And in his biography of De Niro, a bloke called John Parker claimed the relationship continued on a casual basis for a number of years. And when Springs, Helena Springs, had a child in 1982, mm. it was assumed that uh, Robert De Niro was the father. And... De Niro paid her $35,000 and selected the child's name. Oh. However, in a kind of soap opery twist of whatevers, a blood tests a decade later showed that De Niro was not the father. Thank you for listening to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please rate and review us on wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe, and that way you'll never miss an episode. We'd also love to hear from you, especially if we've got any of our information wrong, or you have some more fascinating facts about something we've talked about, or you could even suggest a subject for our starting point. Our email address is when one thing leads to another at gmail.com. A massive thank you to Justin Mitchell for letting us use his music as our theme song. It's a track called Homo Erectus, taken from his fantastical album called The Garden of Earthly Delights, which is available to buy from bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Acast for hosting us. Join us next week for another episode of When One Thing Leads to Another. Please note that all facts have been found on the internet and therefore we cannot vouch for their veracity. Mm-hmm.